I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these are so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm part of the family, the family of God. We come now to the final verses of Peter's first epistle. We began our preaching series through First Peter in September of 2007, and we have pursued this regularly, though not without some interruptions along the way, until we come now to the final sermon on this day, last Sunday of July 2009. Peter helps us to properly appreciate the family of God. We've seen that all throughout this epistle, and we're going to see it again in these concluding verses. It's wonderful to be a part of the family of God, which is no assurance that you have any ability to sing, but nevertheless, it's wonderful to be a part of the family of God. The main body of the epistle, as you know, closes with the benediction in verse 10 and the doxology in verse 11. And then Peter adds a postscript in verses 12 through 14. You'll find that many of the epistles in the New Testament close with greetings from the church where the author was residing at the time that he writes, and with greetings from prominent members of the church, particularly those who might be known to the churches where he is writing. And we find that Peter's pattern is no exception. In verse 12, he mentions Silvanus, a faithful brother who is the courier of this epistle to these believers, and probably the secretary who took Peter's dictation. And in verses 13 and 14, which is our text for today, we will find some more personal greetings and a final benediction. And as we look at these, we are going to see, I trust, four levels of relationships within the family of God. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Four levels of relationships within the family of God. And the first one that Peter points to is relationships between sister churches. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. The question, of course, is who is she? Who is she who is in Babylon? Some have thought that this is Peter's wife, and indeed Peter had a wife. The scriptures are abundantly clear about that. There are at least three references to Peter's wife. Uh, This one in Mark chapter 1, we read in verse 30, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served him. So Peter had a wife. Peter had a mother-in-law. 
Paul makes reference to this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that Peter and the other apostles were leading around with them a believing wife, a sister, though Paul did not do so because he didn't have one. And so Peter didn't make a very good pope in regard to his marital status, did he? He had a, he had a wife. However, this reference is not to Peter's wife. Some have thought that this might be a reference to an unnamed prominent Christian woman. We have similar language, for example, in John's second epistle, when he says in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all those who have known the truth. And then he concludes the epistle by saying, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So is this a prominent lady who perhaps housed the church in her home and was a good example of Christian faithfulness and was well known to the Christians that John is writing to? And is this something similar in the case of Peter? Is he making reference to some prominent Christian lady who his readers would know about, but he does not name in this instance? Well, that really does not produce a very satisfactory answer either, because what it really becomes clear is that Peter is referring to the church where he's writing from. And that's what he's calling this elect lady, she who is in Babylon, co-elect, elect with you. And that, I think, really is what John is talking about, too, in Second John. When he talks about the elect lady greets you, he's talking about the church. Churches are generally referred to in the feminine. The church, she, rather than he, is the way we would even normally speak in our day. And that's exactly what I think you find in Bible days. The literal phrase that is found in your Bible here is the one in Babylon co-elect. The one, and using the feminine article, the one in Babylon co-elect. And this one in Babylon co-elect is undoubtedly the church where Peter is residing and writing from at this particular time. And he is giving the customary greeting of the church to his readers, as we find Paul frequently doing in his epistles. So that's who she is. But the question is, where is she? Where is she? She who is in Babylon. You say, well, that's easy. She's in Babylon. All right. But there are problems. There are really some problems with uh, thinking that Peter and this church is in Babylon, that is the Babylon in Mesopotamia. Uh, Number one, there is no record anywhere of a church in Babylon. Number two, and maybe even more telling, there is no tradition of Peter ever traveling to Babylon. Now you say traditions are not reliable. No, they're not. And we do have traditions of things that happened that probably didn't happen. But I don't think you'll ever find an absence of a tradition of this import if it really did happen. If Peter actually went to Babylon, you would no doubt find all kinds of traditions of that. The Christians in that part of the world, from Syria and all around, would latch on to that and make that part of their tradition. But you find nothing like that anywhere in all the annals of history. No record of a church in Babylon, no tradition even of Peter ever 
traveling to Babylon or ministering to Babylon or anywhere in Mesopotamia at all. Furthermore, we do know from history that Babylon was at this time in severe decline. In fact, the emperor Trajan in A.D. 115 traveled there and he pronounced the ancient site of Babylon a ghost town. Nobody was there in 115. Nobody was there in A.D. 115. Peter's writing sometime in the first century in in, uh, 60-something. It's possible there might have been a few people there at that time, but Babylon was in great decline and it eventually became totally deserted. And that doesn't provide a very good prospect for a church. She who is in Babylon greets you and for Peter being in that particular location. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied the demise of Babylon and talked about how deserted it would become. He used words like this, speaking of Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and verse 39. He said, Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. All the evidence is that Jeremiah's prophecy was carried out and was well on the way to being carried out at the time that Peter wrote this epistle, if it was not already uh, completely carried out. So there's some real problems with thinking that the church that Peter is writing from is in Babylon and Mesopotamia. And any other location that's been suggested really has problems as well. Some have identified a small military outpost in Egypt, a Roman outpost with the name of Babylon, but that doesn't provide a suitable location for Peter to be writing from and for a church to be present in at all. And all of these, of course, are attempts to try to keep Peter from getting to Rome. I hope you understand. That's the whole point here. Because the Roman Catholics have made such a big point of Peter being in Rome and founding the church and being the first pope, some have have, have done exegetical gymnastics to do everything possible to say that Peter never was in Rome. But really, the evidence is that he was. And we don't need that kind of of, um, faulty exegesis in order to show that Peter was nothing like the Pope of Rome. There's plenty of other evidence for that. We don't need these kinds of machinations. Peter was undoubtedly in Rome when he writes here. There is credible historical evidence for Peter being there at this time, as well as some biblical evidence, which I will show you a little bit later. And furthermore, Babylon in the book of Revelation seems to be linked to the city of Rome. In Revelation 16:19 and 17:5 and 18:2, there are references to Babylon and even some other references that I could have cited. References to Babylon that seem to be a reference to Rome. And there are some real indications there that that's the way John is using the term Babylon in the book of the Revelation. And I think the evidence is that that's the way Peter is using the word Babylon here in his first epistle. And what Peter and John are doing are using Babylon as a symbol for the world system, the world that is opposed to God, The world that we are not to love, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
It's a symbol for evil. It's a symbol for persecution. It's a symbol of the exile of the people of God as as the Jews were exiled to Babylon in the Old Testament. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is living in exile existence in this new covenant time. And Rome is the center of that persecution and opposition and evil in the world that at the time that Peter is writing. That's the very center of it all, Rome. And remember... Peter wrote to the strangers who were scattered abroad. Sounds kind of like the Old Testament Babylonian exile, but now carried over into a new covenant setting. And the persecution, I say, is coming out of Rome. It's coming from everywhere, but it is coming most fiercely from Rome, as history well attests to. So who is she? This She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Who is she? She is the church at Rome, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the city of Rome. And she is greeting the Christians that Peter is writing to, Christians we realize of a number of local churches that are identified in his opening verses, you remember, in 1 Peter, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So Peter is writing to elect believers, and now he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. She's elect, you're elect. The church at Rome, the members of that church, are the elect people of God, and these elect people of God are sending greetings to you, who are also the elect people of God. And so when we ask the question, what ties them together, this church in Rome and these churches that Peter is writing to? Of course, many answers could be given to that question, but according to our text, what ties them together is their co-election. They are elect together. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you. God's gracious choice has tied them together. The privilege, privileges of salvation that have come to them because of God's gracious election in eternity past has brought them together. They've never met each other. They don't really know each other, but they have been brought together by the sovereign grace of God. What privilege, what honor, what responsibility to have been chosen by the Most High God, to be a member of His family. And so to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ means that you are one of God's elect. And this carries a tie, a bond. Blessed be the ties that bind. There is a common salvation. There are common privileges. There is a common source that we can trace this grace back up to, back up to the throne of God and to His electing grace. And by the way, just an aside, as we talk briefly about the doctrine of election here, by the way, there would be no reason to even mention election in this context if Peter had in mind the kind of election that many Christians think about, conditional election based upon God knowing who would choose him, and therefore God ratifying that choice, God coming by and and not really choosing, but seconding the choice of others. If that be the case, then 
what would be the point of even mentioning it here? She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Really, election really loses all of its force and meaning and power when you put it that way. And if that's what Peter had in mind, he should have said something like, she who is in Babylon, who made the same decision you did, greets you. (laughs) She who is in Babylon, who made the same blessed choice that you did, greets you. She who is in Babylon, who shares the same common salvation. A lot of other things Peter could have said. But there would be no reason to even mention election, unless, of course, we're talking about sovereign election. And then it takes on a richness of meaning and a purpose and a reason for even mentioning it. It makes perfect sense here. She who is in Babylon, co-elect together with you, greets you. And so why does she, the church at Rome, send greetings? Well, because Christians are members of the same family. This is a divinely crafted tie that binds us together. And furthermore, church relationships are important. There ought to be ties of fellowship between sister churches, the church in Rome, the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and so forth. There ought to be ties of fellowship between local bodies of believers, sister churches. That's one of the great privileges in the family of God. What a blessing it is to be part of the family of God. What a blessing it is as part of the family of God to be able to enjoy not only local church fellowship, but inter-church fellowship with other churches and other places. Sometimes, like this situation, churches that we don't know a great deal about except by second-hand report, but we know that we have believers there, fellow Christians there, Sister churches there in Rome, in Zimbabwe, in Mexico, and all around the world. What a great privilege. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, aren't you? But not only fellowship between sister churches, but fellowship between distant individuals. Peter goes on to write, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So does Mark, my son. And who is Mark? Well, Mark is the son of a prominent Christian woman who we know. Her name is Mary. We don't have to wonder about this one. In fact, uh, she and he are introduced to us in Acts chapter 12. Peter has been let out of prison, and he's going to the place where saints are praying for him, and we read in Acts 12, 12, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Mary was a prominent Christian, apparently of some financial means, who had a large house and was glad to house meetings of the church in her home. And she's housing a prayer meeting on this occasion. And Peter comes to the prayer meeting and knocks at the door, as you know, and they didn't believe it was Peter. Quit bothering us, Rhoda. We're praying for Peter's release. You're, you're crazy. Don't, don't disturb us. Don't tell us Peter's out here. We're praying for Peter's release. He's in jail. You know the story. Well, that was in the home of Mary, the mother of Mark. John Mark was also a member of the first missionary team. In Acts 13.13, we read, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Barnabas and Saul 
and John. John Mark. That's the Mark that Peter's talking about. But Mark, as you know, also became a defector from the first missionary team. Acts 13, 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He went home to Mama. And that's how he became the source of division between Barnabas and Paul. And when Paul went out on his second missionary journey, he didn't go with Barnabas. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas, as we know. And there was this great divide over this young man, John Mark, who had been unfaithful to his assignment on his first missionary journey. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. As we explore the question, who is Mark? We find that according to Colossians 4.10, he was a restored Christian worker. And here we learn for the first time, a close relative to Barnabas, a cousin of Barnabas. Galatians 4.10, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now we begin to get a little bit more of the story, like Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Now we can see perhaps why Barnabas was so insistent upon taking John Mark with him, even though he had really forfeited his right to that privilege, and why Paul wasn't quite so eager to do so. There was a a family matter involved here. John Mark is a cousin, presumably a much younger cousin of Barnabas, but nevertheless a cousin. But you see, John Mark restored himself to Christian usefulness to such an extent that when Paul writes his final epistle from Rome as he was writing in Colossians, where we made reference to John Mark, who was with Rome, is with Paul in Rome, in Colossians 4, and is still with Paul in Rome, in 2 Timothy 4.11. Well, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Get Mark back to Rome. He'd been in Rome. He'd left Rome. He needs to get back to Rome. Paul needs him in Rome. Faithful worker, valuable worker, dependable worker. That's not what he was, but that's what he became in the passing of time. And who is Mark? Well, when you open your New Testament and begin to read the Gospels, you read the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. God thought so much about Mark and his humility and his his uh, confession of sin and his, his determination to follow the Lord and his faithfulness to the cause of Christ, God the Holy Spirit thought enough about Mark to use him as one of the inspired writers of Scripture. That's who John Mark is. And what is Mark doing with Peter? She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. What's Mark doing with Peter? Well, not a lot is given here, but evidently he's serving Christ in association with Peter, very much like he had served Christ in association with Barnabas, like he had served Christ in association with Paul. Where? With Paul? In Rome. 
Paul's been beheaded. But Peter's in Rome. And he sends greetings from Mark, who is with him in Rome. That's the scriptural tie that seems to put Peter in Rome, in addition to the extra-biblical records that would also place him there. So Mark is with Peter, steadily, faithfully serving Christ. What exactly he's doing, we don't know, but he's there serving the Lord, and Peter sends his greetings to the people that he's writing to. Well, why does Peter call Mark my son? She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Well, it's very clear from the record that we have already examined that Mark and Peter had a close relationship. There was this close hometown and home church relationship between Peter and Mark in Jerusalem. Sections of that vast church met in Mark's house. He was there, no doubt, when Peter preached. He was there when the saints gathered to pray. He was there, perhaps, when the apostles gathered together to plan and to strategize. They met in his mother's home. He had a very close relationship with Peter and the other apostles. It is very probable, though by no means certain, that Mark was saved under Peter's ministry. (laughs) After all, thousands of Christians in Jerusalem were. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 on another occasion, saved under the preaching of Peter. Why would we think it's strange that John Mark came to know the Lord from the gospel that was preached through the lips of the Apostle Peter? It's not certain, but it would seem very probable. And that would, of course, make him a spiritual son in the closest sense. But I would take it that probably Peter calls him son because of the age difference. In other words, he decides to call him son instead of brother. If they'd been closer in age, he probably would have said, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my brother. But because there probably was at least a generation between them, he says instead, Mark, my son. And this reminds us again of the family of God language. We are, we are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters together in the family of God. I'm glad I'm a part of the family of God. You'll notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these are so near. I'm glad I'm a part of the family of God with with a whole host of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. What can we learn from Mark? We can learn that failure doesn't have to be permanent. I'm talking to some of you who feel like a terrible failure. You have disappointed fellow believers. You've disappointed yourself. You know you've disappointed the Lord. (laughs) Think of Peter, who denied the Lord 
And yet see how he's serving Christ. Think of Mark, who defected from the first missionary journey, but now he's faithfully serving Christ. Have you failed? No doubt. No doubt you have in in some way or another. No doubt you have. We all have in various ways. Have you failed? Of course you have. But failure doesn't have to be permanent. We learn from John Mark also that faithfulness is the key to usefulness. If failure is not going to be permanent, it's going to have to be reversed by a very consistent life of faithfulness, overcoming the previous unfaithfulness. It was lack of faithfulness that caused Mark to fail. He had a privilege. He had an assignment. He abandoned it. He wasn't faithful to the task that had been given to him. That was to his shame. That was to his failure. How did he overcome that? By being doubly faithful over many years. Faithful in serving cousin Barnabas. Serving Christ with cousin Barnabas. Faithful when he had the opportunity again in serving Christ with the Apostle Paul. Faithful now in serving Christ along with the Apostle Peter. He's been faithful now for many years, and his faithfulness has brought new fruitfulness, and permanent uh, failure does not have to be permanent. And faithfulness is the key to fruitfulness, and faithfulness is the key to restoration. Faithfulness is the key to coming back to serving the Lord after you have stumbled and fallen. And furthermore, we can learn from Mark that this wonderful family of God can enjoy fellowship across great distances. Here's Mark in Rome. Here are the Christians that Peter is writing to in northern Turkey. Had they ever seen Mark? Did they know Mark? Had Mark traveled through their area? Was he known to them? Maybe he was. Possibly he was. There is... Evidence of his traveling. Possibly he'd been there. He's not there now. He's back in Rome, no doubt. But we can still have fellowship across these many miles. It's not the same close fellowship, not the same level of fellowship, but fellowship indeed it is nevertheless. Mark, my son, sends greetings as well. Because there are such wonderful ties in the family of God, such wonderful privileges in the family of God, it's not restricted to those who are close by. We can have these ties of fellowship across many miles, across many countries, across many oceans, across many continents. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But thirdly, we see the relationships that consist within local churches. Peter says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now these are the ones that are close by, right? They have to be. The the fellow members of the same churches, the, the Christians that they worship with, that they serve with, that they assemble together with, the ones who are close by, Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. But what is a kiss of love? I thought about starting my introduction today talking about kissing, and I would have had all the young people listening really close, right? 
Young people, what is this kiss of love? Let's find out. Well, it turns out to be the customary greeting of that day in that particular location. They would greet each other with a kiss on the cheek or the forehead or occasionally the hand. Greeting customs, as we know, differ from different places around the world, different cultures, different different geographical locations. In the Far East, the customary greeting is a bow. Very formal. Don't even touch. In the Western world, the most customary greeting is a handshake. And sometimes a hug and embrace. In the Middle East, the custom is a kiss. A kiss on the cheek, a kiss on the forehead, occasionally a kiss on the hand. We, in our day, see examples of this on television as we see Middle Eastern uh, sheiks greeting one another in a political meeting. They'll, men will kiss men on the cheek. We see that. We, we know that's still the custom today after all of this time. And it was the custom in Bible days, as we have much evidence for For example, in Luke chapter 15, in the account of the prodigal son, when the son came home, we read in verse 20, and he, that is the father, or the the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. In other words, hugged him and kissed him. We would probably do the hug, but not the kiss, right? We're not accustomed to kissing men kissing men, kissing our sons. Most people don't, but we would hug them. But see, the customs were different in that day. That's why when Judas gave instructions to the soldiers of, of how they would identify Christ when Judas was betraying Christ, we read in Matthew 26, 48, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. In our day, he probably would have said, I'm going to shake hands with Jesus. I'll ignore all the others, but the one I shake hands with, that's the one. You arrest him. And he would have gone up and shaken hands with Jesus. But in that day, he gave the customary greeting. He went up and gave Jesus the customary kiss. And they knew who they were looking for. We find something similar in Acts chapter 20 when the Ephesian elders are getting ready to depart from Paul and he's told them that they will probably see him no more again. And we read in Acts 20, 37, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. There it is again. Hugs and kisses. Men with men. Hugs and kisses. We find that strange. We'd be a little uncomfortable with that, I think. But that was the custom of that day. We have to understand that customs differ from place to place, from culture to culture. In fact, this holy kiss is very prominent throughout the New Testament. You want to know what the kiss of love is? It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul, on four occasions, calls a holy kiss. Holy because there's nothing sensual about it, nothing sexual about it, and you be very sure that there isn't, is what Paul is saying. That's why he emphasizes holy kiss, and that's why Peter says a kiss of love, he means of Christian love, the kind of kiss you would give your sister, 
your mother, your daughter, that kind of kiss, a holy kiss, a kiss of greeting, a kiss of holy affection, not sensual affection. Paul gives instructions similar to Peter's. He commands on four occasions, as I've said, for the believers to kiss one another. Uh, One of them is in Romans 16.16, as he's closing out that epistle. And he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Do you get the same kind of language, the same flavor that we see here in Peter? Inner church greetings, and then greet one another with a holy kiss. And Paul says that in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, and in 1 Thessalonians 5.26. I remember, and now Peter in in our text today, I remember reading a good number of years ago in a small periodical, an article by a pastor who said, this is a command in the Bible, we've neglected it far too long. Five times the Bible commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is what we ought to be doing. Let's get busy doing it. I think he missed the point. But they did that in that day because that's the way everybody greeted one another. This was just the customary greeting. In fact, around A.D. 150, Justin Martyr records that the holy kiss, the kiss of love, had become a customary part of the worship service in the course of of their assembly, gathering together, there would be a place in the service that was part of the order of service where they would stop and greet one another around, like we do on Sunday night when we greet one another with a holy handshake. They would greet one another with a holy kiss, a kiss of love. Why is it so important to express warm affection like this? So important that Peter commands it and Paul commands it. Greet one another with a kiss of love. An imperative. Why is this so important? Well, because we are members of the same family and we're supposed to demonstrate that. We're supposed to let people know that. We're commanded to love the brethren. In fact, if we don't, there's something terribly wrong with us. John says in 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And it's important that we keep our relationships close and unhindered. And one way to do that is to have a warm, affectionate greeting when we see one another and when we depart from one another. It doesn't have to be a kiss or even a hug necessarily. We have, we should do whatever's customary to our culture, but it shouldn't be overlooked. It shouldn't be neglected away forever with this shameful attitude that we sometimes see between Christians when they walk into the same area of the church and see each other and turn and go the other way because they don't want to speak. They don't want to shake hands. They don't want to greet. That's what Peter is addressing. That's what Peter says, get over. That's what Peter says, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss, everybody. So that you can continue to cultivate the ties of fellowship that we have as fellow members of the same family. But what does all of this teach us about cultural adaptations? And I do digress a little bit here, but I think it's important. And it teaches us this. Customs may differ from place to place. They often do. But principles do not. 
Even though we don't believe the kiss is a biblical command, as the brother who wrote that article did, we don't take these five injunctions to greet one another with a holy kiss as a command of God. And if we're not doing that, we're, we're sinning, we're, not, we're failing to carry out Christ's will. But we do understand that if we fail to greet one another warmly in the, in the culturally accepted way of our day, we have sinned. That is sin. To see your brother and go the other way. To turn and not, not to greet them. That's sin. It's not sin to fail to kiss them, but it's sin to fail to greet them. That's sin. That's failing to carry out these commands in a true biblical and Christ-honoring way. I think this is, helps explain the question about women's head coverings in church. Some have struggled with that. And the Bible seems to command in 1 Corinthians 11 that Christian women should wear head coverings in church. And some people pour through that passage and try to figure out now, is that some kind of cloth, a veil, or is that her hair? I think it's a cloth. I think it's a veil. Read the passage carefully. But I don't think the point is that we should follow that custom. That already was the custom of that day. And to throw off the custom was very shameful, very sinful. For a Christian woman to just throw off the customary head covering, which women in that day, honorable women, wore as a sign of submission to their husband, as a sign of their their status as a woman in in a day and a culture where these these, uh, relationships were very very set in stone, very culturally um, mandated for a Christian woman to say, well, I've been liberated, I'm in Christ, I'm, we're all one in Christ, no more male, no more female, throw off the customary head covering is, is a shameful thing because even pagan women, unless they were immoral women or exceedingly rebellious women, even pagan women wore their head coverings. So, of course, Christian women should wear their head coverings. It would be a shame for a woman to participate in Christian worship without the customary head covering. We don't have that custom in our day, but the same principle applies. The customs differ from place to place, but the principle is the same. The same Submission of wives to their husbands is still commanded in Scripture. That hasn't changed because we've come to the 21st century or the 20th century. That hasn't changed because we live in America where culture doesn't accept that anymore. You see, I think that's the way we understand these different cultural matters. But more importantly, what does this teach us about the local church? Greet one another with a kiss of love, says Peter. Well, this reminds us that it is the local church, the visible church, that is the clearest expression of Christ's body. We've seen that there are wonderful manifestations of Christ's body in different areas, different levels, but the, the visible church, the local church, is the best, the best manifestation of Christ's body. This is where practical Christianity is practiced. You can warmly greet one another within the local church. You can't do that for the church in Rome. You can only send a letter. Or in our day and time, maybe 
a phone call or an email, but you can't greet them personally as much as you would like to. You can't personally greet John Mark with a warm embrace or a kiss on the cheek as much as you would like to. He's at a great distance. But you can do that for the Christians who are around you, and that's exactly what we ought to be doing. You see, to be properly related to Christ and His body, we need to be properly related to the local church. It really starts with the local church and then goes out from there. This is part of our family privilege, and we need to understand that and appreciate that and develop and cultivate these and hang on to them. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm glad I've got brothers and sisters that are here, real, that I can greet, whose hands I can shake, whose whose, uh, prayer burdens I can hear and can carry to the throne of God in prayer. And I can share my burdens with you. And we can help one another. We can love one another. We can encourage one another. I'm glad I'm part of the family of God. I'm glad I've got a local church. Aren't you? And finally, there, and I have to hurry now, there's a level among the entire people of God. Because this closing benediction says, Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And now Peter's referring to the universal church, and he's reminding us that there's really only two kinds of people in all the world, those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. That's everybody who's saved, everybody who's been born again, everybody in the body of Christ, whether in Rome or whether in Turkey or whether in Jerusalem or whether in places we've never heard of and don't even know they're Christians there. But there are, there are Christians there. And if they are believers in Jesus Christ, there are brothers and sisters in Christ too. Peace be to all who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way to peace, is to be in Christ Jesus. I think it's interesting that Peter is very careful to say, peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. When he's closing this epistle, you, you, would, have think, you would have thought he could have just said, peace to you all, peace to all of you. And everybody would have understood he was talking to the Christians. He's addressed the epistle to the Christians. He's talked about believers all the way through. Uh, why make such a point of that here? Because he doesn't want anybody to be deceived. He doesn't want anybody to misunderstand. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus, but only to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. That's the only way to peace. I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to throw out a a common blessing upon everybody as if it just applies to everybody regardless. God bless you. God give all of you peace. Everybody, everywhere. Because that might deceive some people about the way of peace and about their standing before God. And so he's careful to say peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. But all who are in Christ are part of the same big family, which is a wonderful truth to understand and a wonderful blessing to desire. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. Aren't you? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for such wonderful privileges. And when we think of the awful cost 
required to purchase such privileges for such undeserving rebels. We bow in worship and humble adoration. We confess afresh our unworthiness. And we exclaim with great joy praise to the one who redeemed us in our sin, our death, our darkness. Who brought us to Christ. Who made us part of your family, O God. Who adopted us into this great family and gave us such great privileges. We pray, God, for those who are here who are outside of Christ. O Lord, please be merciful to them as you have been to us. O Lord, please trouble them of their sin as you did us. O Lord, please show them Christ and make him lovely, irresistible to them as you did to us. Draw them sweetly by faith to Christ, that they might enjoy with us these great privileges the privileges which are more important than anything else in all the world, as we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.